Hello everyone, I'm Frank Ars with Lean Startup Company, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the show. Today, we're bringing you part three of our mini-series with Rhapsody Venture Partners focused on Lean Startup and the Hard Sciences. And moderating the discussion is our own Lean Startup Company faculty member, Isham Ibrahim. Our guests are Chris Toon, who's the former CTO of Jividon and former Managing Director of Open Innovation at Procter & Gamble and Jason Whaley, General Partner at Rhapsody Venture Partners. And with that, I'll hand things off to Isham. Hello, Chris and Jason. Hey, Hisham, how are you? Hi, Hisham. I'm well, thank you. Um, looking forward to our discussion today, uh, Chris, and to learn from you and your uh, uh, professional journey. Uh, which is actually where I'd like to start. If you can just spend a few minutes uh, um, talking about or just kind of walking us through your professional journey, um, that I think would be great and give us some awesome context um, for our conversation. Definitely. First of all, thanks for the opportunity to talk about innovation and startups and big corporations because that's essentially the 32 years in my professional life in one way or another have always had that as a touch point uh, and have always had a lot of fun with it. So let me give a little bit some of the highlights. Uh, I'm a biochemist by training, originally from Belgium. And out of university, I started in a small biotech startup. And this was uh, the mid 80s. It was a startup in the area of genetic engineering uh, of agricultural crops. It was a time when in Europe that uh, genetic engineering and GMO were not yet uh, witch words uh, and it was still something that was really uh, what people were looking for. Was doing genetic engineering on agricultural crops uh, for uh, potato, tomato and tobacco and it was around herbicide resistance and insect resistance. And it was a great transition from university into the professional life. And it was also a great way of, of really seeing how young companies can really work and, and how the, the power of teams and empower teams is really important and how quickly you can achieve uh, opportunities. That startup still exists. It's now part of Bayer Crop Science. It was Plant Genetic Systems. It's now incorporated in a, in a big corporation, um, but it's great to see it, it has been successful through the years. After about three years, um, I like what I was doing, but the one thing that uh, was in that startup was if you were good in doing something, you might be doing it for a long time. And at the age of 26, 27, for me, seeing a one linear line towards potential retirement was, was a little bit not what I was looking for. Uh, so I probably made the pendulum swing the whole other way and, and joined Procter & Gamble, where essentially every six months you're on a new project, you're doing something different, they're stretching you as a, as a scientist or potentially as a manager. And it's where I learned really a, a number of what I would call amb ambidexterities, uh, how to really be a scientist, but at the same time also a manager, how to be able to ultimately... Um, not only work on the core business, but really work on innovation and, and innovation that is disruptive and is in adjacencies to continue to grow the pie of what uh, the company PNG was, was standing for. And I had 
a great number of opportunities there uh, that we can probably go in, in more detail later on, but areas around open innovation and how to think around not only your own internal R&D organization, which is a very formidable organization within uh, PNG, but you can only do so much with 7,000, 8,000 PhDs. There's much more that the consumers are asking for in terms of new innovation, where you need to find the nuggets of those innovations outside of, uh, of your own internal organizations. And that's where I learned how to really engage very strongly with uh, startups, with other small, mid mid-sized and larger companies, but really work in an, in an open collaborative way together to uh, not only support the current business, but really create the future together in new areas. And a number of projects that we worked on was for instance, tight dry cleaners, um, which was really outside of the business model of, uh, of uh, PNG and where essentially we were starting a franchise model. Um, but it started ultimately first with a project that was internal, trying to see how we could do cleaning without water which was very, very disruptive. And if we would be successful, could also obsolete Tide and, and all the laundry detergents as we know them today. So maybe something we can talk a little bit further about as well there. I also worked there, um, so I did 15 years in fabric and home care, uh, and then went to personal healthcare. And within the personal healthcare organization, we essentially had a kind of a startup within the big corporation. There was a period of time where uh, management asked us, what would our business proposition be if we want to go in vitamins, min vitamins minerals, and supplements? And we uh, formed a small 11, 12 people, multifunctional, so all the functions of, of the organization were represented. And we were given the mandate in 12 weeks to come up with a new business idea. Uh, and, and this is what is called Clay Street. Uh, Clay Street is this kind of startup from within uh, and giving a small team all the empowerment and the opportunities to really essentially the sky is the limit to a certain extent. And, and to be honest, over my 32 years career, those 11, 12 weeks, because that was the time period we were working together to do this, uh, it's the highlight. It's the highlight. I'm still thinking about it. I'm still dreaming about it. And, and every time I think about it, smile comes on my face because it was so empowering, so aspirational. Uh, and there's so much power in, in small teams uh, from that point of view. And I think it's also showing the, the willingness from the top management in the company to, to, to believe in people and to give them that entrepreneurship to try things out and see what works, what fails, learn from it and do it over again. So that was really uh, very exciting. And then the last four years, at uh, PNG, I was responsible for the Connect and Develop program, so the, the open innovation program uh, for the company. And I worked with uh, A.G. Leffley, uh, the CEO, to set some real uh, stretching targets of what we wanted to achieve with open innovation. And, and it, it really shows how important that top management engagement and sponsorship and championship is to make those kind of things work. because. Clearly, going out of your own walls is, um, is daring, is, is uh, anxious, 
uh, and, and a lot of people can get scared and you can generate a lot of corporate antibodies. Um, and you really need that support and that, and that sponsorship from the top management to, uh, to be able to break down some of those barriers and to make new things happen. Uh, and we've been very successful in that program over the many years. And then about seven years ago, uh, joined uh, Jevedon. Uh, Jevedon is the uh, top uh, leading uh, flavor and fragrance house. Uh, first, I was the uh, leader for the science and technology organization for the flavor division, and then ultimately uh, became an executive member uh, of, the, uh, uh, of the board and uh, had responsibility over the uh, R&D for flavors, fragrances, and active beauty. And also there, I continued to engage with uh, startups. Um, we, we became a founding partner. Jevedon became a founding partner of Mass Challenge Switzerland. Mass Challenge is uh, very much known as an accelerator within uh, the US. Takes no equity, but really gives to the, um, to the startups a four-month acceleration program where they can essentially hone their pitch, hone their business proposition, and really prepare themselves for those uh, initial pitches to, uh, to investors. We did that in, um, in, in Switzerland for a couple of reasons. Um, startups and the startup mentality in Europe is not that much developed as it is, for instance, in the US. Uh, and this was a way to, to uh, give back a little bit to that innovation community and that uh, startup community as a, as a big corporation or as a, a reasonably big corporation that Jivadon is. Um, and also we were looking to, to really find stimuli for our own management within the company to, to think in a different way uh, because Jivadon being a Swiss company, we have our uh, quite, quite strict guidelines and, and processes, how things work and, and how pro projects move through the uh, company. But we wanted to make sure that we continue to renovate and re-innovate and reinvigorate ourselves as well with new ideas. And that's why we wanted to link with uh, the startup communities to get that stimulus and to get that boost of energy for our own management team to really see the not only how to do your own job, but also how other people really develop novel ideas and novel propositions and how we could work together uh, to bring those to the market. So, and since uh, uh, end of August, I'm now uh, retired or semi-retired and uh, certainly giving back to uh, the communities, uh, startup communities in Columbus, Ohio, in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, because really that, that interaction with um, the startups and that feeling that energy and that passion uh, and the sky is the limit, everything is possible and not being afraid to fail is, uh, is, is keeping me young. So uh, even as I start aging, that's my rejuvenation course. No, no, Chris, I think your, uh, your retirement is coming through in your relaxed demeanor. <laughs> So uh, it's uh, it's serving you well. Wow, Thank what a, what an amazing um, career! Um, there's a lot that you said that I want to dig into from the concept of ambidextrous, ambidextrous leaders yep. to open innovation and large companies working with with startups and vice versa. 
um, to your dream 12 weeks um, yep. at, uh, at P&G. Um, let's start with this notion of, of being ambidextrous um, because it resonates with me because it's a big challenge and problem, isn't it, for leaders at big companies who are held accountable by their shareholders and their boards to deliver on the core business. Absolutely. This quarter, this fiscal year, while at the same time, even if they have the right mindset and have the intellectual understanding that they have to renew the business and create new markets and, and innovate, um, they struggle to do that. So can you talk about about this and how how you saw it work, how you saw good ambidextrous leaders do this and what works and what doesn't work, what frameworks they used? Yeah, no, definitely. And you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, it's ambidexterity, uh, even for handwriting, is not that simple. There are not that many people that are really ambidextrous in terms of handwriting. Right? So, and, and the same holds true to a certain extent also in the, uh, in the business world in terms of trying to maintain that balance between, on the one side, being extremely good in uh, managing your existing business, your core business, and essentially the, all the activities that keep the lights on uh, in, in the company at this point in time. But at the same time, making sure that you continue to be fresh and continue to innovate for what the consumers are needing in the future. Because one thing's for sure, changes upon us, changes upon us faster and faster. Uh, and, and there's a lot of risk involved in a way with, with change. And, and therefore, how do you manage that? And the one problem I see in terms of focusing on the, on the core business, and you, your statement was absolutely right, the, the core business, and especially when you're in a publicly traded company, it's about making the numbers this quarter, making the numbers this half year, making the numbers for the fiscal year. Uh, and, and that by itself, that focus takes away the, the tolerance for risk, right? Because you, you want to have everything pre-planned and you want to make the numbers or exceed the numbers. But therefore, it's about execution. It's not about learning. It's about execution. Execution with excellence on target, on price, on quality, on quantity, so that your customers are not getting disappointed. Right? And, and that's important, absolutely. But that drives certain behaviors of management. It's essentially a general management approach with very strict um, key performance indicators, which are normally around sales, profit margins, all of those type of things. It's running with a big governance system on top of it. Management wants to check on these things. Uh, with with uh, uh, the uh, uh, with management, and and essentially also everything slows down to a certain extent. You do evolutionary innovation, but you're not really pushing the boundaries because then you're starting to risk the business again, right? But at the same time, you need to be able to innovate beyond your core because the core and especially in an area and both png is in that field as well as jivadon it's a saturated market right it's 
fighting for that one extra percent market share costs an enormous amount of money and an enormous amount of resources. So you have to think in a different way of how to build beyond your core into other areas where you have a right to succeed as a company. And you also have to think around, is there someone out there that's trying to obsolete the way we are doing the business today? Right? And if you have an organization that's big enough, the best way to do that is to have two pieces in the organization, that, that ambidexterity. On the one side, your, your, your right hand that's taking care of the, of the core business and have an organization that's very much set up in functions and where everyone knows how to run through the process and everything is driven by KPIs. But at the same time, you need to have a part of your organization that can also think freely in a way beyond the boundaries and can be in a more exploratory, experimental way and where failure is an option. On the, on, on the, on the core business, failure is almost not an option. You, you want to really de-risk everything as much as possible because you want to make those numbers and, and the financial analysts are expecting you to make the numbers because if you don't, We've seen over the past couple of days as well with Apple and with and even with Amazon, if some of the numbers aren't made, you, you can quickly lose 20% of your value as a company. No one wants to take that risk. But at the same time, you need to have that ability to just go and explore and, 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 and have that blue sky experimentation where you eat failure for breakfast and you eat it for lunch and you eat it for dinner and Ideally, you, you still are angry and you also eat failure for, for dessert, right? So, so, but how do you do that within the same company, right? And I've seen and, and, and I've worked in both types of organizations where on the one side, we, we, we say to people, look, 80% of your time you focus on the core business and 20% of your time you can do some, some broad brainstorming, freewheeling, those kind of things it doesn't really work because the core business will always take um, uh, priority over the longer term. Horizon one is always closer in and therefore, if there is work to be done and there's always work to be done, there is always a little crisis here, there's always a danger that you're not gonna make a certain number here or there. There's a section of those, that mind space that you want to keep for the longer term that mind space gets sucked in into today's activities. So the way that I've seen it work is that you're able to secure a part of your organization with people that can think unlimited, can, can work unlimited, work more in this kind of multifunctional team setup, a kind of a startup within the company, and is being protected to do that kind of work, protected from a resource point of view, so that they can really dedicate their time on it and are not being distracted and being pulled back into the current business. They're also protected with a budget by itself that is, even if the mothership is burning in a way, they can still continue the activities they need to do. Someone else will take care of the firefighting. Um, and, and where you have a management that is willing to give people that freedom, that flexibility, and is willing to protect them against some of the other 
antibodies that might otherwise get generated within the company. With um, this this group of corporate entrepreneurs that you're that you're describing, uh, what is the organizational structure? Do they ladder up to the same core business leaders, or is it a separate leadership? So are we asking the core business leaders to be ambidextrous in this in this scenario where they're leading core teams and entrepreneurial teams? We've we've had both. Um, and, and I think both can work, but it, it's, it's really the kind of leader uh, and, and you need to be able to feel comfortable to work across both um, um, sides of the, of the chasm uh, as a leader. If you're not, then it's better to let it sit by a separate leader who really is, is, is great at it. At PNG, for instance, we had both a business unit, uh, startup kind of small groups, and they were reporting into uh, essentially the president of, of uh, the, the business unit. But we also had what was called FutureWorks. And FutureWorks was a separate organization that was going beyond the existing business unit, it was just looking at other types of new opportunities that could either end up in a business unit or could become a new business unit going forward. And they were reporting essentially directly to the CEO. So, so you have you have both kind of situations. And how, how have you seen the um, the integration work or the bridge a bridge built between the two organizations? Because this is something that we struggled with for a while while I was at Intuit until we figured it out. Um, and I've seen it in a lot of companies also fail when there's a separate entrepreneurial organization that has its own budget, its own leadership, and they have the freedom. <clears throat> and no matter how good the work that they do is, and even if they end up with a very well-validated idea, when they go back to then talk to the business about commercializing it, the, the core business groups don't wanna hear about it because it's not there and it's not on their roadmap or it's not with their direction or, or what have you. What have you seen work to make sure that these entrepreneurial groups' work is aligned with the business um, and that the right bridges are being built? I think there's a couple of things that are that is important. One is early engagement uh, of, of those other business leaders. Even though they don't have anything to do with it, they want to stay in the loop. They want to know what's, what's happening. They want to know where those other exploratory activities are, are, are happening and are taking place. And one way you can do that is by setting up a kind of, uh, we called it the Corporate Innovation Fund Board. Uh, and, and it was a group that had the oversight on that separate budget that was being used. But they came from the different business units. So they had their say in where should these teams explore? How much money should they get to the next milestone? Uh, what would have to be true to give them more money? Right? And, and being in those discussions allowed them to be part of, the, part of the entity in a way versus just feeling left out and then starting to 
create negative feelings and everything and, and essentially no matter how good the idea might be, come up with all the reasons why it, it should not work and why it shouldn't be something for the company. So I think bringing the other leaders in without them having a responsibility, but making them aware of what is there, I think is very important. The other thing I think then also is um, to do two other things. One is when certain things fail in that, in that new field in Horizon 2 and Horizon 3, is to have a good system where you talk about what were the learnings and be very open on, on the learnings and, and the failures. Don't try to push the failures under, under the, uh, the carpet, but really use it as a learning experience and, and, and helping the broader organization also to see that it's okay to fail as long as you learn from it. And for, for me, fail is not a verb. Fail is an acronym, which stands for first attempt in learning, right? And, and who doesn't want to have a first attempt in learning? And if with those learnings, you can do your job better afterwards, so much the better, right? The other thing we also did was um, essentially when there were successes, talk in, the, in, in a right way about those successes. And it's not like beating yourself on the chest on how good you were, but really show how these new opportunities and these new ways of exploring help to build the business and help to, to continue to grow the business. And I think that's important as well, because ultimately, I think a, an organization is always a kind of a flock of sheep, right? And, and everyone wants to have success. And if you can show the lead sheep what success they've had, then everyone starts to move ultimately towards that kind of an approach and that kind of a, a way of doing the business. So I think it's also helping the, the current leaders to start thinking, even within the current business, can we take on some of these approaches in in not necessarily to the same extent or to the same magnitude, but try a couple of those different approaches and, and set up some small multifunctional teams versus just staying within the normal functions. So uh, I think helping to make it ultimately contagious, but in a positive way contagious, uh, I think is, is the way to bring all the, the opportunities together. I think that's really good. Um, you mentioned um, Horizon 2, Horizon 3, um, and I'm not sure that everybody is familiar with those terms. So we might as well spend a couple of minutes talking about horizon planning yep. uh, uh, and managing, managing um, a mixed portfolio. So do you mind just talking for a couple of minutes about what horizon planning is and how you've seen it work? Yeah, so uh, in, in the companies that I've worked with, we normally talk about three horizons, horizon one, two, and three. Horizon one is normally the next 12, 18 months. Uh, horizon two is the next two to three, four years. And then horizon three is anything that takes more than, than four years. Um, and it's, it's all about balance. And it's about um, how you manage that kind of a mixed portfolio because you don't use the same criteria or the same KPIs, key performance indicators across that whole horizon. For, for horizon one, essentially everything should be extremely well planned already. The, 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 the critical pathway is well defined and you know you're on your way towards commercialization and there you have a very strict governance system on how to do these kind of things. Um, horizon two and especially horizon three is more about 
option analysis, right? You, you don't necessarily know yet what is all going to be successful, but you want to have a lot of ideas. They need to be anchored around where the strategy of the company is, for sure. Uh, a company like PNG or Jividon, uh, you don't want to go and explore anti-gravity because it's not going to be very helpful for your business in one way or another. So you want to make sure you stay close enough to the core but not be limited by the core. Um, and and you, you, you look at many options, and then it's essentially what one or two experiments can we do to say, are our leap of faith um, assessments or, 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 or targets true or not? So that you can very quickly go from 100 great ideas to 10 that you say, okay, yes, there really is some skin on the bone, Let's or some meat on the bone, let's keep building out what this could be and take it to the next level. It's a different way of managing your, your risk and, and your opportunities, but you have to do that kind of triaging of a lot of great ideas into the few that you're ultimately going to put into your portfolio and that then will ultimately run and feed from Horizon 3 into Horizon 2, ultimately into Horizon 1. So... Fantastic. Um, Jason, before we move on from the topic of ambidextrous organizations, any thoughts that you personally have or observations or, or any follow-up questions for Chris? Yeah, the, there's an idea that you've mentioned a couple of times that I wanted to dig in on a little bit, which is this idea of corporate antibodies, which sounds like a cultural phenomenon that stops things from happening. And I'm wondering if you just want to talk a little bit about what that means in your mind. And then if you are someone in a company that's trying to set up an innovation team, like how can you scavenge those antibodies a little bit to sort of prepare the organization to be receptive to what you're trying to do? Right. Yeah, there's a couple of, of things related to the uh, corporate antibodies. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's normal human behavior to a certain extent, right? Because uh, the people that are within the R&D organization who have that mandate of build out uh, the new innovation, they put their blood, sweat, and tears into the work. And especially in the older, older days, a lot of that work was with internal focus. And especially when you had really big R&D organizations, the, the great thing about PNG was there were 9,000 R&D PhDs, the bad thing about it was there are 9,000 great PhDs because the, the, everyone thinks we can do everything internally within, within the company. And then there comes a great idea from outside and, and people feel threatened a little bit on why didn't we think about it or how are we going to deal with this? Especially also because in, in, the, in the early days, if you look back onto what their own personal objectives were for their rewards and recognition, for their bonuses, it was about what did I do, right? Or what did we as an internal team do? It wasn't about did you find the best possible idea no matter where it came from. Uh, and, and the way we started to, to change that was to talk about essentially consumer is boss. And, and this is within the PNG context, right? And that was a very important concept in the sense of when you start telling the story 
the consumer doesn't care really where the idea is coming from. They just want it to be in the bottle of, of Tide that they are buying. It doesn't matter for them whether or not it came from one of the 9,000 PhDs we had internally within PNG or it came from wherever, as long as it was in the product and the consumer was happy with it. So that's how we started to talk about um, probably found elsewhere, we applied with pride, right? So, so it was no longer about did I do it myself, but it was where did we find it and did, was I helpful in making it successful? Can I see somewhere my fingerprints on this, not to claim it's mine, but to, as an enabler to make it successful in the market together with the external partner, the startup or, or another company. Uh, so it's really a, a lot about mindset, ultimately, making it not a threat, but making it a opportunity. And, and, and yes, not everyone is necessarily um, wired in that way. And that's another learning we had. You know, there, there are certain people that you can't force to think that way. And that's, that's okay. There's enough work to be done internally within a company that you can put them in your own labs and you let them do that work. And, and you, you let them work on their own or into a small uh, internal team. But you don't necessarily put them in front or work with, with an external partner because that would not work. On the other side, you've also got people that really get a, um, inspired by those interactions with, with that startup mentality and, and the founders and, and the, the, the people that come up with those new crazy ideas. So you have to think around who do you place in which kind of an environment, but then certainly also make sure the right reward system is there. Great. It sounds like in order to drive that sort of mindset change, I remember when you were describing the Connect and Develop program at P&G, you talked about working directly with Art Laffley. Um, and it does seem like if you're going to try to change the mindset of a large, large organization, you need some buy-in and perhaps push from very senior levels. Absolutely, and, and uh, ideally the CEO, right? It all starts from the top and, and it's the CEO. And, and it's really about leading by example. So what he did was, he was not only personally involved in setting that target, which was 50% of all the new introductions uh, that PNG would have, uh, have a external component, have a nugget that we found through our connect and develop program. So that, and when he set that goal, we were at about, I think, if I recall well, 13% or something like that. So it was really a stretching target. Uh, and it, 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 it was set on purpose that, that high to say, look, we can't just do it by doing what we are doing today just a little better. That's not going to work. We really have to find a different way of engaging with, with partners, with uh, the external world, because doing it the old way and just doing it a little bit better is not going to get us from 13 to 50. It may get us from 30, 13 to 17, but mm -hmm. that's not going to be sufficient. So he was, he was very instrumental to set that stretching target. And then also what he continued to do once that target was set was in all his meetings, and I wasn't necessarily present in all, but I heard about it, was he continuously asked, what are you doing on Connect and Develop? When, when a new project or a new area was brought to them, to him, 
he, he was saying, and, and did you check outside? What, what are others doing? Can, can someone help us? So he had that ongoing question in every meeting and therefore it became an expectation, right? So, so his subordinates, his uh, managers that were going to update him on their programs, their, their uh, business unit knew over time he was gonna ask. And therefore it trickled down into the organization because they wanted them to make sure they had an answer and they had some new ideas. So they asked their organization, what are you doing in open innovation? So it starts from the top. Now it doesn't mean the, the bottom is just sitting there and waiting. I think you need to give the bottom also the opportunities to find these, these novel ideas and these startups on, on the outside because you never know where the, the biggest idea is gonna come from. Uh, and therefore, I think you need to let both play, but it's important that there's empowerment coming from the top and engagement coming from the top and enablement of the bottom to come up with new ideas themselves as well. I think that's a huge distinction um, that you just made between leading by example, actually walking the walk, mm -hmm. and executive leadership just talking the talk and, and giving lip service. and. Um, uh, I unfortunately have seen a lot of the latter, uh, saying the right things, but not realizing that if they want that to happen, they themselves have to change how they, how they lead, how they do their work, uh, how they hold their staffs accountable, how they ask these questions. Um, and, uh, so it is really important for support from the top to be by example, and like you said, it kind of forces the trickle down, like you said, and it forces the behavior. Um, before we start digging into open innovation, before we leave this general topic of ambidextrous organizations and balanced portfolios and entrep corporate entrepreneurship, um, and as long as we're talking about uh, Lafley, do you, for, for our viewers who may be struggling with this in their organizations, do you have a favorite book that is on, on some of these topics? Uh, on ambidexterity, uh, the the one that and and I know you're you're uh, linked to to that to a certain extent. I really like the startup way. Yes, um, because I think it talks about that, uh, and I and there is there is a a picture. Or, or a diagram in the book around essentially the two sides of uh, management, the general management component, which has its way in terms of the process, the accountability, uh, the, the systems and everything. And you have the entrepreneurial way, uh, which is more about um, allowing for that experimentation, exploration, looking more at leading indicators versus versus lagging indicators so it's it i think that book lays out quite nicely how to to try and balance both approaches within the same company and also lays out very nicely how um you start small because you, you can't convert the whole company in one go you you have to start in in some small areas thinking about where the people are that are having that mindset all, already the most and, and where if you infect them, you're not going to create antibodies, but you're going to create more viruses in a way. 
so that it continues to infect and the, the broader organization. Uh, so I, I think there's a couple of really nice concepts in that book uh, that I, I really liked and it's a, it's a fun reading, at least for me it was. Excellent, good. So The Startup Way by Eric Ries on modern management and, and corporate on entrepreneurship. Yep. Fantastic. Um, let's take it a little bit more in open innovation. Um, first, let's define it. What, what is open innovation? For me, open innovation is, is uh, a, an extension of, of essentially the work you have to do anyway, right? Because uh, certainly if you're in, in an innovation-driven or an innovation-oriented environment. Um, in the past, when you had enough people internally, you could do that innovation just internally. In today's world where there's so many changes upon us and where the speed becomes so important, you can't do everything internally. You can still do everything internally, but it's going to take you too much time, too much effort, too much money to, to try and do it all internally. So for me, it's really just an extension of your own internal resources. And you're now looking at the next circle around your own company into your own country or your own geography or your own industry. And then beyond that, other industries. And you're, you're essentially continue to look for those resources that can help you to be successful in what you're trying to achieve. There's a couple of things that that requires. It requires the right mindset uh, of, of people, and we already talked about it. So you don't want to start with people that have this kind of NIH, not invented here, syndrome, right? Because when, when they see these, these people on the outside and they see new ideas coming to them, their mindset will be, what are the three things that are wrong with this? Why this would not be successful? Versus someone who has the right mindset looks at what are the one or two things I can do to make this successful? And, and it's, it's very little differences, but it makes a, a very strong difference uh, to, to your partners you're working with. Um, the second thing that it requires is focus. Uh, because there, there's so many great ideas on the outside, you need to find a way to anchor yourself to, to a lighthouse, uh, which says, look, this is what we as a company would stand for, not only today, but three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. And how could some of those opportunities from open innovation help us to build those, those ideas further? Um, so, so for me, it's an enabler. It's an absolutely must. Uh, I don't think anyone can still do things internally um, because it's about, in the past it was, and I think it's a, a quote of Rupert Murdoch, in the past it was the big companies eating the small, right? Nowadays, it's the fast eating the slow. And how can you as an organization become fast? It's through open innovation in my mind. Um, because if you would do it all internally in the old way of doing the work, Yes, you, ultimately you may get there, but the opportunity will be gone already. By then someone else will have done it. By then the, the opportunity has passed and something new has come up. So uh, for me, the best way of dealing with that change, dealing with that speed, that agility, is through open innovation and find opportunities, not only internally, but also externally. Let's talk, um, uh, I think this is what you just described is great um, conceptually, 
let's talk more tactically how you've seen the model, the model work, because I, I want to address you know, some of the concerns of the naysayers or the people who are skeptical about it or nervous, nervous about it who might say, well, we're going to get into like legal departments probably throw up their hands and say, well, no, there's going to be IP issues and this and that. So kind of on the ground, how have you seen this model work pragmatically so that it's a win-win for both parties? Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a great question and, and uh, I'll use the example of tight dry cleaners as a, a, as a way to talk about it because yes, there are indeed those um, potential constraints if you think about it in the traditional corporate, corporate way. Um, uh, and, and I'll go a couple of steps back before uh, the tight dry cleaners. This was a project that essentially was originated within the fabric and home care uh, division of PNG. And it, and it started with a question of uh, Nabil Sakap, who was uh, the vice president of uh, R&D for the home, fabric and home care organization at that point in time. And I was, I was reporting to him. And he, he and I were in a discussion and it was around water. Uh, and uh, just for, for your awareness, uh, within the whole washing process, um, there's a lot of water that goes through the washing machine and goes down the drain. So it's not necessarily the most sustainable way of, of water use. Also, uh, the heating cycle of that water that's in the, wa in the washing machine or the preheating of the water when you get warm water in directly into your washing machine is the biggest energy consumption driver within a house. Um, so, what are ways that you can you can essentially uh, reduce that impact of water on the washing process? That was the starting point, um, and and we started to brainstorm first internally, and it was like, well, maybe we can do it without without water, and we just pulse air on on the garments, and hopefully that shakes off the stains. Now, very quickly, we did a, an experiment. What what we did was. We sat on, on the side two people that were very, very creative. We were a little bit renegades in the organization, but we allowed them to, to, to just work on their own. We let them rent a garage outside of the corporate, or, uh, the corporate offices. The reason we did was they had to modify the washing machine to be able to just have air pulses in there. And if we would do that within our own confined spaces within the company and we would put them in our internal corporate laundries, the process you would have to go through to make that change was multiple months to, to try and make that happen. So we said, look, we're going to do this in a different way. Yes, we're going to be safe. We, we don't want to kill our own employees or harm our own employees, but we don't necessarily have to go through the traditional corporate treadmill to make this happen. So we let them uh, rent that garage. They were playing and modifying the washing machine there. Ultimately, air didn't work. Then we said, okay, what, what else could be there? And then we brought in a couple more people that were looking into alternative solvents for, for, uh, for, for washing. And we ended up with dry cleaning. Dry cleaning at that point in time was all still around perk, perchloroethylene which is a, a very uh, chlorinated solvent, not very safe uh, for, for dry cleaning and things like that. 
So we said, no, we're not going to use that. Certainly not if we would want to bring that in the house. That's not going to work. So we, uh, we looked with, with uh, a couple of people out of our information technology group. What are people doing? What other types of solvents are being looked at? And we came to a company in Kansas City, Green Earth, who had developed a more earth-friendly, environmentally friendly solvent based on silicones. Uh, and we said, okay, now we found it. We, we started a collaboration with them. Yes, indeed, we had to think through who's going to own what on the IP because this was a completely new field, so very green, green field in terms of uh, potential patent, patentability and, and those of those ideas. But we said, look, what's most important is not who owns the technology, but who has control over the technology. And again, a, a very small change in, in your mindset of do I need to actually own the patents? Does my name need to be on there? Or is it sufficient that for house application, home application, I have exclusivity on that, on that IP? And, and that's how we got through that kind of a, an IP challenge where our lawyers were happy because, yes, PNG was still in control. They were happy because they ultimately owned the IP, they being the, the partner. Um, and then a, a long story short, we tried to do this in the house. Very quickly, we realized as we were making the modifications on, on the washing machine that this was going to be way too expensive as a washing machine. People are never going to buy that in large quantities. This was always going to be a, a very small uh, opportunity. But then we essentially pivoted and said, but today in dry cleaning, people are using perk, right? And, and where are those dry cleaners? They're, they're in a little strip mall here and there. They all look very shabby in a way. Why don't we think around a tight dry cleaner? Because tight has a enormous loyalty base. People really trust tight, even to the extent we, we did, we did a, this is a site, we did an experiment once, whether or not tight could be a good, um, partner kind of company, right? Like, like uh, match.com, uh, finding, finding a, a partner in life. And it, it had a higher probability of being successful than match.com just because people trust Tide so much as a name. Uh, so, so but, but therefore we put the credibility of the Tide name, a great novel green solvent and a opportunity for franchising and we, we created a completely new business model that now, if you would look on Thai dry cleaners and, and you, you Google it, there's Thai dry cleaners all around the, the, the US already and it's still expanding. So, and, and this is a completely new business for, for PNG. We would have never thought about it by itself, but it was by allowing an organization to go on a journey give them the empowerment, give them a little bit of money here and there, break a couple of rules. It's not break the rules, but say, look, outside we, we can go faster. Can we do this? Yes, you can. So, so don't just think you have to always follow the highway. You can, you can take a little side street here and there and, and get faster and it leads to success. That's fantastic. Um, Chris, what, what, what's one tip that you would give um, managers or leaders in in, uh, uh, in large companies 
um, on this topic of open innovation. And on the flip side, what's one tip you would give startups or small companies that could be potential partners? What's what tip you would give them about working with um, uh, large companies in this? Right. Uh, so, so for the managers within the larger companies, uh, one key tip is make sure you've got your own house in order before you start going in the open innovation. And what I mean with that is, and, and, and the analogy you can make is with a restaurant. You need to make sure you have your own kitchen in order before you let guests in, right? Because otherwise the guests are gonna sit there and wait and nothing is gonna end up on the table. It's the same in, in open innovation. You need to make sure that your own organization internally is ready to receive these new opportunities, to receive these different types of companies, know how to deal with them, have that agility and that responsiveness to go back on their time, on their perspective of time, not on your perspective of time. And a great example on that is at PNG, we were always thinking, oh, we can make a decision in three months. We are really fast, right? The, the, the startup is expecting you to be back to them in three days, not three months. Three months may be the difference between the startup still being um, liquid, having money, having the ability to continue as, a, as an organization versus being bankrupt. So be, be completely ready to, to, to get those ideas in and to quickly triage because it's important to go back to, the, to the, the people that bring you those ideas and say yes or no very quickly. And no is okay. Uh, people can live with no. And the other thing that, that we learned was to say no with added value. And what I mean with that is um, when, when an, an idea came to us, but it wasn't really for us, we very quickly went back to the, the provider of the idea or the opportunity and said, look, not really for us, but through our own network, we know here are two or three companies who might be interested in this. Have you talked to them? If you not have talked to them or you don't know who, who is in that organization, we would be willing to make an introduction for you, right? So we gave back value on that no, right? And, and the other thing that that does is it makes you a real attraction point for new ideas. Because now a company is going to be, and, and it, it spread very quickly in, in, uh, in the startup community, that kind of behavior. Because when, when companies know that when you bring an idea to them, and you're going to get very quickly an answer. And if the answer is no, there's a probability that someone else is now going to be able to connect up with you and may be able to make it work. Why would you not bring your ideas always first to PNG? So either way, there's value. Yeah. So so no no with added value was was important. So that's from the the corporation point of view. From from the um, startup point of view, I think it's important to to know a couple of things or to drive for for a couple of things. As we said already before, be certain that the company you're approaching has a system in place that is essentially supported and sponsored from the top, that the top is really behind it, because otherwise you might be losing your time, right? Because you, you, you try to get that idea to plant in, into, a, into an organization, but if that organization's top management 
is not having a belief that that is the right thing to do, you're probably not going to have a success with that company or it's going to be slow and it's going to be uh, probably very frustrating and ultimately it may not lead to something. So know that there is top management support in the company that you are trying to approach in, 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 uh, in working together. Secondly, know very clearly what are the drivers of the people you're working with? What are they getting rewarded for? Are they getting rewarded to get those new ideas through the organization? Or are they just giving you a favor? Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with favors, but again, that, that will create more slow progress because if it's a favor and suddenly there is something on the core business that's uh, happening, for a couple of weeks, you as the founder of that startup or, or a key person in that startup, you're not gonna see people and, and you're gonna ask yourself what's happening here, right? So, so know what really drives them and, and is, is this kind of an activity something that is core to them? And part of that also is, do you really know the decision-making process within the bigger corporation? And there's two potential ways that, that um, I've always worked. It's either the racy model or the pace model, right? So, so the racy is, do you know who's responsible, who's accountable, who are uh, in, informed and who are uh, in contact there? Or on the pace model, who's the project owner, the approver, uh, the contributors and the executors? Because you as the leader of your startup you may have to tell your story and, and your engagement with these different people within the decision-making process in a different way. The core of your story may be the same, but how you put it in context, whether or not you're talking to the project owner or you're talking to the person who ultimately will execute once this is a success, it's a different environment or a different way you color that story. And, and you need to be very much aware of that so that if, if you know how the decision-making process is within that company, within PNG or Jividon or whatever company you go with, then you can navigate your way much better through it and you can hone your message much, much better to get the right feedback and the right input to uh, what needs to happen. Chris, from the startup point of view, do you have any um, tactical advice on how to discover that type of information? Ask. Cause, yeah, because I've noticed. No, I think there's, there's, there's no way if, if you're gonna, well, there may be here or there on the internet a little bit of information around certain companies. The best way is, uh, is to ask. And, and if, if the bigger company is not willing to give you that information in some form or another, it doesn't mean they're gonna give you all the secrets. But if they don't, if they're not willing to give you the broader picture of how the company works and how the decisions flow through the organization, I think that there should be some alarm bells going off. If yep. you're if you're the startup, so asking it, I think, is the is the the most straightforward, but also the most honest way of doing it. Yeah, and I think many, especially scientific founders that we work with, just don't know the question to ask they don't understand the context on the other side of the journey that the big company is going through at the same time. I fully agree. Excellent. Um, 
we're almost out of time, but I'm, I'm really anxious to hear about your 12 week uh, experience uh, uh, on an entrepreneurial team. Yeah. I, I would love for our viewers who are um, in similar situation or similar context in large, or in large organizations to learn from that experience, how to set up a successful model like this. Um, and since you enjoyed it so much, that sounds like you're never, you're so fond of the, of the memory, um, it must have been set up rather well. So walk us through that experience. How, what, what was it like? Yeah, so, uh, and, and people can Google it, uh, not our specific project, but uh, the concept. The concept is called Clay Street, uh, C-L-A-Y, Clay Street. And it's actually a street in uh, the city of Cincinnati, Ohio. It's a little bit in a dodgy area uh, of the city. Uh, it's an old brewery uh, and the parking lot is fully fenced off because if uh, you would leave your car on the street, you might end up without wheels uh, during in the evening. But it, it was put there on purpose uh, in, that, in that environment. Uh, it was put in that old brewery because it's a very creative space. It's a, a space that you can mold and, and, and do a lot of different things and it had great rooms, large rooms and things like that. But it's also for the people that were part of the, uh, uh, of the team, it took them out of their own comfort zone, right? Because it's not the, the traditional PNG offices or anything. So, so it, it, it puts your mind a little bit in a beginner's mind. Uh, and, and they used a lot of these uh, design thinking uh, kind of concepts to, to set up the whole experience. So it's a, it's a special place. Um, you go there on a daily basis. It was a team of 12 people and all the functions were represented, finance, R&D, marketing, branding, engineering, all the functions were there. Um, it was a project for 12 months and it was a project out of the personal healthcare organization where we had just made the decision not to be a pharmaceutical company, but to focus on over-the-counter uh, consumer wellness and health. Uh, and the, the concept or the, the business proposition we needed to develop was what would be the way for PNG to enter into the vitamins, minerals, and supplement space. Right? So for 12 weeks, we were there. First of all, on the first day you enter, you give up your cell phone, you give up your computer of PNG. So for 12 weeks, you're out of the normal system. They can't contact you, you can't contact them. You can contact other people, but you can't contact the, the, the PNG people. Um, and you essentially have a budget and you have a timeline of 12 weeks. You know by the end of the 12 weeks, the growth board, you could say, or the, or the, the, the new business development board, which was the top management of the business unit, and uh, of the company are going to come and listen to what you have come up with as the business proposition and, and the idea. Uh, so you're, you're in control of your own time, your own money. You make your decisions yourself. There's only one touch point with that group in the middle of, of the, the 12 weeks. So after six weeks, you're at a certain stage. You can use half a day with, with that uh, growth board 
to ask questions, to ask for advice, check whether or not you're on the right track or not, whether or not you need to make some modifications here or there. But for the rest, it's all within the team. And this was not necessarily all uh, extremely high level in the organization. It was essentially middle management and, and lower management uh, type uh, uh, people that, that were uh, doing this. But the power of such a small team being by itself from essentially six, seven in the morning till 10, 11 at night, because we didn't uh, stick with the, the normal traditional PNG hours. We knew we had to finish everything. And if we were done it in 10 weeks, that was great, but we certainly didn't want to not have something. So there was definitely pressure on the team, but the way the team gelled and, and the way you became so um, congruent as, as a team, it, it, was, it was magical in a way. And, and, and it, it created a, a lot of lasting relationships, but also what, what was uh, put in place was um, we were allowed to do certain things related to um, uh, improvisation. So there was a coach that came uh, who was doing improv theater and all these kind of crazy kind of, of exercises. But it was really to help us form a very strong single team and really to create that independent, uh, interdependence on each other. Um, and and it, was, it, was, it was remarkable what, what you can achieve with 12 people in 12 weeks. And, and not a real big budget, but uh, uh, an okay budget. And we even had money left, but we were in total control. No, no questions asked. I was going to ask you about coaching. You mentioned coaching. Um, did you have a coach or a facilitator that yeah. taught you or taught the team or guided the team, for example, on how to form experiments or how to talk to customers? Things yeah. like that? or were you completely just self-managed on your own? No, there, there, there were two people that uh, are part of the Clay Street organization, which is an organization within uh, PNG, that essentially helps the teams through that stages. So, so, so they're, they're not, they're not going to drive the direction of the project, or they're not going to say, oh, by now you should be here or you should be there. But what they are there for is to help you say, okay, this is normally the journey that people go through. They normally spend so many hours here, so many hours there, that, that. and they also bring in some of these uh, improv coaches and, and team formation exercises on a, on a regular basis here and there. The other thing we did was, uh, uh, which also I think is, is really powerful for, for small teams, multifunctional teams, is two times a day we came together as a group, um, all sit in a circle, and, and in the morning it was just how was your, your, your evening yesterday or what do people need to know about you today? Um, I'm, I'm grudgy today, don't, don't look at me today because something happened or whatever. But you let people know where you are, what they can count on for you, what not. So really important, uh, these kind of connection points where the whole team is together and then you can spread out and everyone can do in smaller teams their activities and run certain things in parallel, but bring it all together on a daily basis. Uh, it, was, it was great. I think we always underestimate the importance of this. 
congruence on, on, on a team. And just simply that, that morning check-in that you talked about, it's such a simple and not time-consuming. Well, it was a quarter of an hour or something like that. But its impact is immense. Yep. And then the same happened at the end of the day. We, we came back together before uh, the closing. We reviewed what had happened on the day, uh, what we uh, planned for the next day. So uh, those two connection points, early morning, just to, to know uh, how, how is this person going to behave today? Can we count on him or her to the extent we need to? Or is there something else working in their life that they need to take care of? Whatever. Um, and then in the evening, really uh, a review of what, what the, the progress was on the day. Uh, very, very powerful. You mentioned something interesting at the, at the beginning about giving up cell phones and, and such. Um, I understand a bit about nobody in the company can contact anybody on the team. Um, but I'm intrigued by the fact that also you are not able to contact people in the company. And there. so my question is, how can you leverage company resources? We could, we could, but uh, indirectly. So they wanted to have a barrier direct between us also to prevent that there was like some ongoing work potentially happening, right? That, that, why did you contact them to talk about the projects that you had left behind and you wanted to know where they were? Or were you really asking questions around certain things that people within the company could help you? So, so let me clarify what, what we were not able to do was that direct contact, just to make sure that what my project was that I left behind is still on track. Uh, how are people doing on that? No, that, that could not happen. But if there was expertise in the company that we needed, we could ask that through the Play Street organization. So we had a checkpoint on was our, was our request really uh, value, uh, valid? Uh, and, and then we could get the uh, expertise from the company for sure. Um, what's, the, what's, the, what's the main thing that you learned from this experience? The main thing is, um, and PNG set this up uh, to try and get uh, this kind of behavior also back more into the company, right? And the re-entry into the mothership was very tough because for 12 weeks, we were to a certain extent on our own. We were the decision makers and we were in control of our own destiny. And, and I'm going to make it more black and white than it really was. But then when you enter back into the company and you need a notepad, you had to fill in a form in threefold to get, to get the notepad in a way. It, it, that was the feeling you got. Everything was so uh, corporate in a way, right? And, and, and it, it, it felt heavy and it felt slow and it felt very bureaucratic. Um, and and that, that was really uh, something that, that on the negative side, uh, so, or, or not necessarily on the negative side, but something if, if people want to try this, have to be aware of that the re-entry in the company may be difficult. Uh, getting back into a normal mode. Yep. And then on the flip side, what's one thing you would do differently in those 12 weeks? Uh, 
the one thing I think that we didn't do enough and that I would definitely uh, go even more on, and, and PMG is already strong in this area, but I think we could have done more, is uh, consumer centricity. So we had the ability to go and test with consumers minimum viable product and test certain leap of faith um, parameters. Uh, but, but I think we too quickly thought we knew what they were telling us or we, 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 we listened to what we wanted to hear probably a little bit more is to, to maintain that blank sheet, uh, keep that open mind, that alien eyes, beginner's mind a little longer um, because I think we missed a couple of key points um, which over time were incorporated into the project, but we could have picked them up earlier if we would have listened more and longer and, and uncumbered listening. That's very good advice to anybody doing this kind of work. Um, fantastic. You know, we're, we're quite a bit over time. I can sit here and talk to you for hours more. Uh, Chris. We can do another session if you want. Uh, we, might, we might need to do that. Um, Jason, before we wrap up any, you always have some good final words of wisdom uh, tying things together. So uh, anything you'd like to, to close with? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm always thinking of things from the, the point of view of the entrepreneurs trying to engage and partner with big companies. You know, at Rhapsody, we always advise um, founders to try to partner with big companies early on, especially if they have a scientific innovation where the channels to market are complex. Uh, and I think it's really helpful to hear what it's like on the other side of the fence. Because if you have been spending the last seven years of your life completing a PhD at a technical university, um, trying to imagine what life is like for the executive at Procter & Gamble that you're negotiating with who's been at P&G for 20 years, that's a big leap. Yeah. So it's very helpful to hear you know, the, the challenges that they face, the types of things they're measured against, and even how they might be going through a journey to change their own mindset from the core business to the innovation. Um, so I think it's really useful to, to hear the way you talk about it, uh, not only for leaders that are trying to emulate what you've done in your career, or, or companies that are trying to achieve the same thing you did at P&G, but for entrepreneurs trying to partner with those big companies. Um, it's just, it can save people a lot of time to be able to empathize with uh, the decision makers on the other side. Yeah, and, and I think that empathy is, is very important. And uh, one thing, and it's not something we did necessarily, but it might be a, a very interesting concept to follow for the future is have a kind of a, an internal translator, right? So someone who may not necessarily be linked to the project, or to the relationship uh, directly, but someone within the big corporation who knows how to work with, with uh, startups, who can be that translator for the PhD, uh, the person who, who just finished their PhD and doesn't really understand how that big company is working and, and where that, that translator, that champion, internal champion for the, for the startup can be this kind of, oh, this is the way it, it works and this is what you can expect and who, who translates PhD speak into corporate speak to a certain extent or startup speak into corporate speak and vice versa, right? Yep. 
I call that person Virgil. So in Dante's Inferno, Dante's tour guide through hell is Virgil. Yep. So whenever we go into a big company, we like, okay, we have to find Virgil, and that's yep. going to help Absolutely. us navigate where we're going. Absolutely. Yeah. This, this would make, I think, for, for a really great future episode, if maybe, um, you know, Chris, we can have you again, but we can also have, um, you know, maybe an, an entrepreneur or a startup founder, um, maybe, the, maybe the, the company, the green company that you're working with. Yeah, Green Earth. Have yep. them, yeah, have Green Earth on and talk about the, the journey that you guys um, went through together from both perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. Great well, idea. Um, well, uh, thank you very, very much, uh, Chris. I really, really appreciate it. Um, uh, I think we all learned a lot from uh, the experiences that you shared with us uh, today. Um, and thank you, Jason, very much. And uh, it's almost Thanksgiving, so happy Thanksgiving to the both of you. I hope you enjoy a wonderful holiday. Same, same for you.